0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the ASU Sports Business Podcast. Hope everyone is doing well. Um, and yeah, what a week it has been. We're just going to jump straight into it. Um, I am happy to have with me today um, my old lecturer, and still a very good friend, uh, Sean Hamill from Burtbeck. Um, he is, I don't know, well, if you know him, you just know he's just a tough guy, very passionate about what he does. I think it transfers into like his students and the people that he still talks st- Talks to today to be honest with you. Um, so, Sean, how are you? I guess just introduce yourself a bit, what you do, your background, and stuff. Uh,
1: like. Great to see you, Gabriel. Yeah, well, um, just to say, I'm Sean Hamill. I'm an academic at Robert College, University of London. For the last 20 odd years, we've been running a program of uh, sports business management, postgraduate master's programs, and research in the business of football. Uh, we get we get some great students like yourself. Hmm. Give us oh, yeah. a lot of energy. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting because um, when we held our original conference back in one thousand, nine hundred and eighty-eight, there were a group of us in the Department of Management at the time who were all interested in sports. We were all economists of different types. And it was, um, B-Sky-B were trying to buy Manchester United. Wow. Yeah, the context was that there was a regulatory investigation in the UK into the legitimacy of collective selling of broadcasting rights by the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, of course, the cornerstone of the business model because it, it allows the league to sell on behalf of the clubs and then they can redistribute re- the income. Yeah. To the teams and the Premier League is spread an even distribution because they want to have match day uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, so Brighton may not necessarily have a chance of winning the league, but they should be able to beat Liverpool away, for example, yeah. a given day. And the reason why that's attractive is because what's important is that, you know, the mainstream sport economics theory says that um one of the key drivers of demand for sports is competitive balance yes so to come uh so to basically um we had this conference about the takeover and uh, we got involved we 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 actually were in favor of collective selling, we mm-hmm. thought that it was um a good a positive thing
0: and and, and just to just to explain right, what you mean by collective selling it means the league as a whole is sold as one property to broadcasters in terms of the individual clubs selling their own rights.
1: Absolutely correct. And it's a one of the North American model of sport. Yep. In most other industries, this would be regarded as a monopolistic practice because Mm -hmm. what you would expect to happen as a result of this is that as the um, pay-per-view football was a sort of the key content Yeah. on pay-per-view TV, um, that if one broadcaster had the rights to it, then you might anticipate that they would force up the price to the consumers. Yep. And the second problem with it was that um, you know if you if you gave a broadcaster a long-term contract, like say I had a five-year contract, it would create a barrier uh, to new entrants. Yeah. Um, but the regulator decided that um, it was legitimate in the context of sport, and later there were other investigations into. The Champions League, the Bundesliga and the Premier League by the European Commission yeah and they also agreed that in sport it was legitimate because it allows it allows the league to single brand as well mm-hmm. you know so um, I mean uh, and they can generate more revenue for sponsors yeah. etc. but critically it allows them to redistribute income relative yeah. balance and it also allows them to pay solidarity money
2: yeah
1: it. so in the case of the Premier League, for example. A percentage of the domestic broadcasting rates goes to the Football Foundation for the benefit of the grassroots. Now there's been a lot of debate about whether the sum of money is big enough and Mm. whether it's been declined. But the point of it is the principle is there. Yeah. And you know, this principle, if you if you look at the competition regulations of the Champions League, it's it's in there and one of the in, in the appendices about why we need collective selling. And the other thing I would say about collective selling is that Virtually all the leagues now in Europe. I mean, Portugal is one of the last standouts. Yeah, but gone to collective selling. Yep, yep. yep. Um, from individual selling, What individual selling is when the clubs sell their own home broadcasting. Yeah, range.
0: and for example, that was what um, I think previously t- clubs like Real Madrid, Barcelona, yeah, done. You're absolutely correct. Uh,
1: yeah, that was the norm in Spain up until 2015. Yep. But the problem with that model is there's a number of problems with it. I mean, the first problem with it is, of course, it's a massive advantage to the big teams. Yes. Because it means that you get a much higher level of disparity in income. So the major teams, so I think it was, uh, from memory, it was, I think in the Premier Premier League, the TV income was something like Mm 2.5 to to 1. So the top team got 2.5 times more than the bottom team for the TV. income. In the league, it was 12 to 1. Yeah. So the consequences of this were, first of all, it made the league much more predictable. Mm-hmm. It obviously made Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico much stronger in European competitions. Yeah. Um, but it basically made the league less balanced, and uh, which meant that it was more difficult, I would say, to sell it internationally. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're, I mean, the Premier League's one of the big strengths of the Premier League um, business model is that they were first movers in terms of. Selling their rights internationally. Yeah, I mean we have had conversations, for example, previously about you know I mean I'm old enough to remember PSL in South Africa being a really really strong commercial league. You know I think it, you know I think at one point one point it was you know it was up there with the medium level European football leagues in terms yeah.
2: of sport. yeah,
1: and you had Bransick like Kaiser Chiefs. I mean you even you even have an indie band named after <laughs> <of> the <laughs> yep. so, so so you know what for Paradoxically, what's happened in the last twenty years, given its strength, is that you know, I know what I don't like from speaking to my South African friends that young people in South Africa are probably more likely to watch the Premier League now. Yeah, and I mean this is a function of a lot of factors. I mean, it's a function of excellent marketing, maybe the Premier League in those markets, you know, selling the broadcasting rights into those markets. Yeah, having great players in South Africa playing in the Premier League. But the point the point about it is is that this this was has been a really successful part of the Premier League strategy because they yeah. have the biggest international footprint of any league, mm-hmm. and one of the things that they're selling is is well they're selling a lot of things. I mean, they're the most international league in terms of talent. So like only one third are, are English, yeah. But obviously that means two thirds are international, which means there's there's probably going to, if you mean there's probably going to be a top player from your country playing in the Premier League, yeah, lucky to it. Um, but the other thing about it is that there's a high level of match day uncertainty. So i yes. go back to the Brighton-Liverpool mm-hmm. situation because if you're a broadcaster, a lot of the time, although you're selling the whole season-long uh, programme, you're also you're also selling each match as an event. Yeah. And so you need that level of uncertainty. And I mean, personally, well, it's not just my view, it's a, a lot of people's view. One of the problems for the Liga was that, you know, Barcelona or Real Madrid are playing. They're likely to win.
0: Now, the, the reverse side
1: is that they have these Galacticos players, your Messi, yeah. your Neymars, mm-hmm. um, your Zidans. So there's another school of thought in sports economics that says that um, having these big star players is actually as important as competitive balance. Yeah. It's impossible to prove that which, uh, what, what's most important. The consensus is that competitive balance is the critical factor. Yes. And... The other problem with the, the imbalance in, 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 in a league like La Liga was that, in order to try to even come near to matching the big clubs, if you were a smaller club, you probably had to over you had to overspend. Yeah, what they did, mm-hmm. and there was a huge financial crisis in Spanish football after the two thousand eight crash, which went on for a number of years, mm-hmm. where you know, wholesale clubs went bankrupt, like Valencia. The banks yeah. that had the money went bankrupt. Yep. They, could, they couldn't pay their tax or social security. And in fact, the move back to um, the move to collective selling in Spain really was driven by the government in part because they wanted a more financially sustainable business model for the Liga. Mm-hmm. In order that the clubs could just meet meet their social uh, obligations. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of different reasons why uh, competitive balance is important. Mm-hmm. It's not the only factor in driving demand, of course not. Yeah. But it's a very, very important driver. And to come back to the topic of the day, you know, one of the reasons why UEFA were were themselves looking at the, the reorganisation of the league and why they were under pressure from the big clubs was that there was a perception. I mean, if you, if you go into the CIES website, for example, CIS Football Observatory, they have a lot of data on this. It's it's yeah. free access that until you got to the quarterfinals, the competition was becoming very predictable. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And that this was affecting commercial sponsors' interests and uh, broadcaster interests. And I think a a very practical illustration of that was that for the last um, cycle, 18 to 21, I think um, Sky didn't even bid for it. They just let BT BT have it. So my own view is that, I mean, I, I have to declare an interest here. I mean, you know, we at Birkbeck have, a, have done a lot of work with UEFA. Mm-hmm. We're partners in the European Masters for, uh, for Global Sports Governance and the UEFA, which is a, an executive master's program for senior executives in sport. Yeah. which UEFA uh, supports FIBA basketball supports as well. We're also uh, an academic partner with University of Limoges and the UEFA Masters for International Players, which... As the name implies, it's about educating international players. Yeah, in the post careers, I mean, great, great African players like Jeremy are our, our graduates. Dida Drug was currently on the program. Um, you know, I've done all the work for them. Although I haven't said that, I've also done. We we, we ran an executive program for Feet Pro, the player union, as well. I've done work for year League Basketball. So, I mean, I would say, you know, I, I, in that sense, I'm a gun for hire. Like, I mean, <laughs> we, we'll do. We are in the education business, but yes. it's true we've had a close relationship with UEFA. And it is also true that I'm quite sympathetic to the model that they have developed. Mm -hmm. And just to come back to why I think this is important, I think that UEFA was originally established in 1954 to set up a a cross-European competition. That was one of the two reasons. The other was to form a European bloc to exercise influence within FIFA. Yep. So, you know, that's what that's what one of the reasons they were set up. And I think they have now, you know, nearly 70 years of experience in running club competitions. And I think a central point that we mustn't lose sight of is that you know the big clubs in Europe are where they are because of the UFA Champions League. Yeah. I mean, the, the 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 competition has been a phenomenal success. And I think that you know, we, we, we need to be careful not to forget that. It's it's not easy mm-hmm. to design and operate an effective mm-hmm. competition. It's gone through various iterations. You know, they've experimented. When there was a threat of the, the breakaway in the late 90s, for example, when Berlusconi's media partners company was was pushing it, they moved to a second group stage to test that. They abandoned it in the end because, you know, the game's between teams three and four, when there was no Europa League to drop into, became completely meaningless. But, so I would say that they've been quite innovative, really, uh, on that. Yeah.
0: But, but, the, but the difficulty...
1: Sorry, sorry, if you, you, you want to come up with a question. Yeah.
0: No, I'm just saying, um, I think what, you're, what you mentioned just now about competitive balances is so important for many people who are just listening for the first time or trying to find the connections. It's around that, that whole model and obviously what makes it attractive and, of course, um, an argument towards maybe objections to the in terms of the style or the or the format that was um, that everyone knows about in terms of the Super League and how it was run um, and, and another aspect actually uh, is that whole um, closed league operation although it was yeah. well 15 teams well f- space for five teams to come and go and it could increase but predominantly it was um, 15 teams just within that space and what you're going back what you said previously before going back to what you said about the uncertainty that is an aspect that as you, what you said is really attractive you know for international markets and you know for the premier league which is really good and that may be reduced or minimized um with those proposed um uh esl well
1: no i i don't know i think actually what they were trying to do uh, one of the one of the arguments behind esl was actually they wanted more competitive balance because for example, my own team, Celtic, were beaten 7-1 by Paris Saint-Germain. and I'm not the game myself. And, you know, that probably wouldn't have happened 10 years previously. Yeah. Because what we've seen over the last 10 years is, is that the big clubs have become international brands and their revenues have increased. Yeah. And so there's 15 or so clubs that really are very far ahead in terms of revenue now which obviously, um, as you know from our sports economics you know, classes, yeah. there, there's a correlation between revenue and labour spend and success. Yeah. Typically in sport, if you spend more, you know, all other things being equal, yeah. you'll be more successful. Obviously, you know, when you have somebody like Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson, one of, the, one of the, the things about him was that even though Chelsea had more spending power when Abramovich came in, Manchester United were more successful because, obviously, Ferguson was just such an outstanding manager. Yeah. So you can buck the trend, but it's quite difficult. And this leads me to, let's say, the problem that was emerging in the Champions yeah. League, that the, 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 a lot of the a lot of the games before the quarterfinals were becoming too predictable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if you then switch to the North American model, I mean, this pattern of, you know, how leagues develop They've seen all that in the early days of their yeah. league. And so what happens is that where you have just a normal promotion relegation system that we have, yeah. and you don't have any restrictions on on ability to acquire talent and to reward players, then what happens is that really only one or two teams are profitable. The teams in the most revenue, you can outbid everybody else for labour. Yeah. Everybody else loses money trying to keep up with them. And a lot of them go bankrupt, particularly if they go rele- get relegated. Now, because from the very beginning in America... It was an entertainment business, not a sport. Yeah. Yeah. They addressed this issue by, first of all, getting rid of relegation. Mm. But once you get rid of relegation, you've got a problem because the teams at the bottom of the league have nothing to play for after one third of the game, say, because the revenue is too low to compete with the higher revenue teams. Yeah. But there's no penalty. So... You end up with a lot of meaningless games. So how do you address that? Well, you address that by redistributing redistribute income
2: mm-hmm.
1: to make all the teams broadly equally powerful in the labour market. The, the draft
0: system they have as well, right?
1: And the draft system, the, you yeah. know, the revenue sharing, the luxury, the whole panoply of mechanisms that they have basically to equalise the, the labour market spending yeah. power. And then what you do is you bring in a salary cap in order to ensure that all the money doesn't go to the players. Yep. So it's a very simple model. You, 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 you basically, there's two prime drivers for it. One, you want to make the teams profitable, mm-hmm. which is why you eliminate the promotional relegation. And then you bring in the salary cap. Yeah. And then in order to achieve the highest number of meaningful games, AKA competitive balance, you, you know, through competitive balance, you redistribute the income, et cetera. And then you have things like um, the playoff system, et cetera, et cetera. So, and that's basically the toolkit. And although it's a monopolistic type setup, um, and, you know, uh, they've, the, the American courts have provided le- uh, uh, exam- uh, the, 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 the legislation that states recognizes, you will know, remember the famous Walter Neal paper, the Peculiar Economics of Professional Sports. That
2: Yeah, great paper. You
1: know, yeah, what, what's interesting about sport is that you have to you have to cooperate with the various people you're competing against Yeah, in order to uh, produce the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you end up with this model where, in the NFL, there's 32 teams where everybody can make money, and you engineer the system through redistricting their income, Salary caps, draft system, etc. etc. So that in theory, on any given Sunday, they use the phrase team A can beat team B, yeah, or win the Super Bowl. So that's the model, yeah. Essentially, that was the model that was being proposed for ESL for the Super League, yeah, with the exception that they were keeping some places open, it was going to be a, a semi closed league, yeah, uh, and then that, that would allow them to bring in. At their own discretion, other teams. And in my view, what would have followed from that would be, would have been they would have they would have actually had aggressive redistribution of it. They would, have, they would have had a redistribution of TV money. They would have had some kind of salary control system, you know, maybe a beefed up financial fair play system. I mean, there's yeah, arguments, yeah. there's arguments about whether or not you could legally have a, a, a conventional salary cap, or legal arguments in Europe. I think they probably, they thought, I mean, you know, they, they obviously, I think they thought they probably could do it. Mm-hmm. And I think it would begin to look a little bit like Euroleague basketball, which you yeah. followed it. There's a core group of teams around it every year. They allow certain teams to come up from the national leagues. Yep. Very few. Um, and then they believe that because they had all the best talent. So if all the best players gravitated to this league, mm. And you had a high level of match day uncertainty. Yeah, then you could really, really sell this as a broadcasting product to fans around the world. Yep, and you wouldn't, you know, one of the things that's one of the words that's been going around during the week is this term "legacy fans." <laughs> it's like yeah, traditional fan. Yeah, and they obviously believe that they don't really need these people, which I, which for other reasons, which I'll get onto later, I found extraordinary. Yeah. So that's the model. That's the model that was being proposed. So basically what they were talking about doing is leaving the system that created all the value in the first place, carving out the current high value added element of it, taking it out of that system. They say they were going to pay solidarity money, you know, back to the grassroots. Well, that remained to be seen. I mean, I personally, I, I, I think... I mean, there's a very, there's, well, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sceptical.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that, that's the basic model. Yep. And so what I want to, just to follow on from that, right, um, understand the basic model, I think just to, just maybe honing um, before we move on to like maybe really, you know, doing a critical analysis of the ESL, just in terms of the, because this is nothing, this is nothing new, right, under the sun. It's come to the public eye now, but for years, right, this has been happening this we want to call it power struggle or internal things happening behind the scenes that you wait for between like so-called top clubs and the UEFA establishment. At least since
1: the establishment of the Champions League in 1982. This this has been going on for 29 years. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's, it's nothing new. Big clubs trying to see, you know, know, other ways to maybe generate more money and for the benefit of the game, as as they say.
1: Well, I don't... I mean, I I think that... I mean, uh, to be absolutely blunt, let's just just deal with that issue. Yeah. the ESL is for the benefit of the big clubs. It is not for the benefit of the game. Now, Mm -hmm. can I say that, you know, the North American model is an entirely legitimate model. Yeah. It's not morally inferior to the European model. Yeah. It's a different model. It's a different vision. Mm -hmm. It's an entertainment business model. Yeah. I don't personally... I don't want to see it in Europe myself mm-hmm. because I think that there are certain aspects of the traditional European model. I mean, I, I, I think the sort of Darwinian aspect of the promotion and relegation system, where a team like Atalanta, if they, if they manage themselves well enough, can get up into the Champions League, I think yeah. it makes a healthier competition.
2: Yeah.
1: Also, like, like you know, you have a thing called the hat trick program, FIFA have a, a program called the forward program where service yeah. from the Euro and the World Cup. Like like billions of euro go back to the grassroots to develop the grassroots. Yeah, I mean the NFL does not make much of a contribution to the grassroots. And the other thing about this American sports is that there are hidden subsidies there. Mm -hmm. They get their talent delivered to them for free from the university system, much of which is publicly funded. Yeah. So you know, in they can in a way they can get away with. I mean I mean there's I mean for a capitalist society, the the America the United States of America is remarkably generous <laughs> to the the, the the sort of the, the entertainment sports model.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and
1: we can have a whole separate discussion about the treatment of student athletes and by the NCAA in America, which yeah. I think is extraordinary. Yeah, I, I do think is the, the, there's a there's a there's an ethical issue about whether. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I think they should be paid.
0: Yeah, no, agreed. But, I mean, I, but I'm, I'm going off
1: on a tangent a little bit. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, But I guess. I mean, you you already shared your views, but I guess in the at the crux of it, how did this, where did it go wrong? How did the things dismantle? Do Did the top clubs really fail to understand? I mean, you mentioned the legacy fans, right? Did they fail to understand maybe the, especially the, the six English clubs, did they maybe fail to understand the real integral part that sports or football plays in this country? Or, or where do you think it went wrong in terms of... Um, yeah, the ESL. And another important point as well that I want to mention, you mentioned broadcasting rights. Um, maybe we can delve into a bit more just the opportunity that that, that they saw in terms of the international market. Um, we can obviously um, use an example as well, um, NBA, basketball, how they're expanding and growing. But I guess, yeah, let's start. How, I mean, how where did it go wrong?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think the first problem with it was... Um... I think that they, right up until Friday, I mean, I only know what I've read in the press, but yeah. right up until Friday, they were, you know, through the European Clubs Association, mm-hmm. which represents clubs in Europe, Yeah. which which originally came out of the G14, which was a group that was represented. It was originally 14, became 18 clubs. Yeah. They were the original attempted breakaway group in the late 90s. Yeah. And how they were formed was that they were constantly agitating for more money for UEFA, even after the for the Champions League after the the initial breakaway attempt in the late nineties. And then when Michel Platini was elected in as president of UEFA in two thousand and seven, he did a deal with them whereby the G four team was uh, disbanded and they were reformed as the European Clubs Association. They were supposed to be yeah. more representative of all the clubs. So they, you know, they have two places on the UEFA executive committee, and they're. They have a role in all the key commercial c- committees within UEFA that decide the policy for the Champions League. So they were intimately involved in the negotiations about what the structure would look like for 2024 mm-hmm. to 27. Mm-hmm. And the key players like Perez and particularly Andrea Agnelli, I mean, from Juventus, they were all involved in this. So, yeah. so right, uh, and and Mr. Woodward at, at Manchester United. So right up until Friday, Saturday morning. Their position is that we're 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 part of ECA and we're 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 negotiating to reform the Champions League, and then suddenly, from nowhere, they make this announcement, which yeah. demonstrates that they were all along they had a parallel plan. So there's a fundamental problem with trust. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, how can any other stakeholder within the this, the football universe really trust them? Mm. Yeah. Right up until the final. I mean, that's the fun, I think that's a fundamental challenge. That, that, that I think that personally, I think that's the biggest reason why the thing failed because you know, everybody else involved from UEFA in particular, FIFA, the national leagues, Premier League, the other clubs in the national leagues in which these teams I mean, they must have been all asking themselves, Well, can we believe anything these guys tell us? Yeah, very much so. You know, and, and the other thing, if you take the Premier League illustration, I mean, this would have had a devastating effect on the Premier League because just look at the calendar issue. You know, you can only, a top player, FIFA Pro, the player union are very strong in this, and I think they're mm-hmm. absolutely right. A top player, how many, top, how many games can he really play in a season? I mean, Solomon, I think three years ago, played nearly 80 games. Yeah. And he, went, he, was, he, flew, he flew back to Korea four times in a season for national team matches. I mean, the man must be a human, (laughs) it's a phenomenon of athleticism. But let's say you could play 60 games. I mean, that's a lot of games. So if you are in a 20-team league, I think there were going to be two leagues of 10, weren't there? Yeah. Um, Were they going to be home and away? I think so. Yes. Um, So that's 18 games. Well, that means that the Premier League would have to be smaller wouldn't it Mm -hmm. which actually brings us back to project big picture in the autumn which was one of the yes wasn't it yes it was so so so, you know um but actually my own view is that it would have to be even smaller because if you're playing if you're playing 18 intense games plus the playoffs is 18 you know if you've got 36 games to play or or thirty-four games to play in the premier league are you going to be playing your best players
2: yeah, yeah,
1: you're so, right. I think, I think the thing about it is, is that it, it posed an existential crisis to the Premier League mm-hmm. because it would, you know, you know, first of all, they would have fewer games, and also, would the games in the Premier League be a priority?
0: Not the, to mention the other domestic the competitions.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so, and this would have been the same thing for all the, the national team competitions. And this is exactly—I mean, we already know that this happens from EuroLeague basketball because. Yeah. Euroleague Basketball has really badly damaged all the national basketball leagues in Europe, to the extent that Euroleague, which represents the national leagues, has now taken a, a competition case to the European Court against Euroleague Basketball. Mm. And of course, who are the big teams in in Euroleague Basketball? Barcelona, Real Madrid. Yeah. So, I think that the first thing was the trust issue, but the second thing was it became very very clear very very quickly that. This would be very damaging for Syria, Bundesliga. Well, not for Bundesliga, because there are teams won't but for Syria, La Liga. And, and the Premier League. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very damaging. Yeah. I mean, the third thing about it was that I think that they underestimated completely the fan backlash. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that disappoints me the most, I mean, I've written a lot about Barcelona, as you know, and, you know, I'm a big supporter of the fan ownership model. Yep. Were, were, you know, while well acknowledging that not all fans want want mm-hmm. uh, fan ownership, but you know, I was very disappointed with it. I mean, I think them, they of all clubs should have should have recognized that they they have come out of the ecosystem in European football, and yeah. we should be able to devise a system, a, a, a solution to the competitive balance issue within that system. But I think that what what they underestimated was the fan backlash. And this leads me to an economic point. I mean, one of the other factors that I mean, you know, when the Premier League was first established, when I, mean, I was one of the skeptics, I thought it would be over-commercialized, price all the traditional fans out of the ground, etc., yeah. etc. But actually, there's twice as many people going to the top level of games in England now as there was in 1992. Mm-hmm. It's a very it's a fan competition, and. The other thing about it is, right, is that um, one of the reasons, again, why broadcasters like it is because of the atmosphere, it's because of the partisan yeah. attitude of the fans. I mean, a few years ago, I think it was Arsenal had very high prices for a Man City game for Man City away fans. Yeah. And there was a boycott. And my understanding is that the broadcasters were concerned about this because they want the away fans in the ground. Yeah. Because the away fans create atmosphere. The antipathy, the, co- the competition between the away fans and the whole fans creates atmosphere. Mm. And this is part of the TV spectacle. And, you know, the, the Premier League then persuaded the clubs to introduce a cap on the prices for away fans. Yeah. Now, you know, the one thing we've learned from COVID is a broadcast game with no fans is not the same as a broadcast game in a full stadium full of partisan fans. Yep. And one of the things that I find extraordinary about this debate, the, 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 the Super League idea, is that, if it's true, this idea that they could replace in the ground the legacy fans with what, if you were being really cruel, you might say are tourist fans. Yeah. Um, because I think what, what you know, it, it means that they don't, they didn't fully understand what drives the value. Mm. There's a lot of different, I mean, it's very, very hard to organize a, a successful team competition. Yeah, the balance is important. The quality of the, the, the athletic quality of the players is important. The superstar effect is important, but the atmosphere is also important. And the partisan fans bring that value. And um, I think that they clearly, I think they, 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 do, they obviously didn't understand that. Yeah. They would they they would have been much more sure footed about how they sold the the, the, the the um the proposition.
0: Yeah, completely agree with you. Um even taking things into consideration more um before coming out with statements or releasing things, yeah, it just shows that maybe their their motives, even There's though they've come out with arrogance. apologies.
1: There was, a degree, there, was, there was a degree of arrogance about it, but more importantly,
0: yeah. back to the economics of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know,
1: for you know, this this idea of the emotional and the irrational investment of the fans you know it has an economic value I mean if yeah. it's relegated and 20,000 people still buy a season ticket even though relegation is a, is a proxy for failure Yeah, I mean you, you can then borrow against that I mean there, there are companies like ticketus who will lend money to clubs on the back of their season ticket revenue I mean it's high interest but you can do it so the point about this I mean, you know, good marketing people understand this. That this, like a lot, a lot of people who aren't interested in football find this sort of emotional investment in clubs, which are private businesses, irrational. But whether they think it is irrational or not, it actually exists, and it contributes to the broader economic value of the product, as a, if you want to use those terms. Yeah. Particularly as a broadcasting product, and yeah. um, and it's possible to monetize it um in other ways. So for example, using season ticket sales as a proxy for to borrow yeah. So you know I, I just felt that again the way the way that the, the, the Super League idea was launched, I thought I was surprised at how unsophisticated.
2: Yeah, correct. I, the I,
1: understanding I, yeah. of, of the of the fan landscape was and um yeah, it was. I mean, I mean, it, I, mean it, it, I mean, it looked
0: a bit, it looked a bit amateur, to be honest. Yeah, I actually thought it was because this, it was much more serious than I thought. So when it first came out, I thought, okay, maybe this is like a, a power move. They'll say one thing, then they get people at the table, but it looked like they actually thought what they came up with was, yeah, this is it, and then we are going to push through with it. Um, yeah, I know it's just, um, yeah, they they got it badly wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, and you know, I think. Um, I mean, just to move on to this European model of sport. I mean, I mean, I have a philosophical issue with it, really, as well. You know, I, I, um, I think that although football is a business, I mean, you know, it, it's grown out of a sporting culture. Yeah. And to this day, I mean, FIFA and UEFA, I mean, they're structured as not-for-profit associations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, people may start laughing about that, but that is a fact. Yeah. And. Like, even FIFA, who obviously went through this extraordinary governance uh, scandal, yeah, which we, which we all know about, in which the journalist David Kahn explained in great detail in his brilliant book on, on, on the whole, the yeah. court proceeding in Manhattan, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is that, you know, FIFA have a solidarity program called FIFA Forward, and it gives literally billions of euro over a four or five-year period. Yep. Back to grassroots, back to back to, to develop football in Africa, for example. I mean, yeah, if they were a closed league private business, that would not happen. That money would go back to the yeah. share. Now, you know, you ever you have, have a similar program called the HapTech program, which takes the money from the Euros. Now, not a lot of people don't seem to be aware of this. And you know, the the um the way it, the way it works is that you know if they, they they said in the Super League proposal it was a bit sketchy. Mm-hmm. There would still be an element of solidarity, but if you look at the NFL, etc., it's just not there. What would happen? Event I think is that the money would go to the shareholders. Yeah. Well, of course it would because it's a private entertainment business. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. there's nothing. You know, it's not there's nothing wrong with that, but it is a different vision, and it would yeah. have a consequence, and the consequence would be that you would not have that solidarity flow to the grassroots of football and the, the grassroots of football would suffer. Yeah. The other thing, um, you know, so for example, if the Premier League, I mean, imagine that the Premier League just decided to stop giving money to the Football Foundation, for example. I mean, that would have a, a really significant impact. Yeah. Now, the other thing I think, I just want to get this in because I know time's it on. The other problem with the Super League was the challenge that it raised to national team competitions. Yeah. If you look at EuroLeague basketball, they're now running games in competition with FIBA National Basketball games. Um, players aren't automatically released. I mean, if you look at, say, the NHL, National Hockey League in, in America as an example, they didn't release players for the Pyongyang Winter Olympics yeah. 2018 because they didn't see it as in their commercial interest. Now, what currently happens with player releases is that under FIFA rules, clubs are compelled to release players if to fit to go and play in FIFA and UEFA calling the ball, calf competitions, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, from time to time, it, 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 what's his name? Um, a few years ago, was it uh, the guy who played for West Ham? What was his name? Um, he, scored a, he scored a winner in the West in, in the Cup against Bristol after, after being sick. Uh, I've forgotten his name. Yeah, yeah. It'll come to me. But anyway, FIFA fined West Ham 100,000 euros for that.
0: Oh, I've got his name.
1: Yeah. So the, the point about it is, is that up until 2010, the clubs didn't get any money for the players. But as part of the sort of global settlement, the, the settlement that you was know, well, part of the wider movement within the football politics after Platini was, uh, was elected, FIFA and UEFA both set up insurance schemes to cover player injuries at the major tournaments. And they yeah. also pay the clubs money. In proportion to their players to play in the tournaments. Now it's still not huge money, but the principle has been established.
2: Yeah.
1: Now, what I think would happen if this leak would have gone ahead was at some point the clubs would say, "Well, why are we releasing players to competitions where we're not getting enough money from? Um, We're either not going to release the players at all, or we we want to control the competitions because there are players." Yeah, a good point. And you would then get into a whole. Sort of debate about who's going to control national team competitions, and you know, we're already seeing this. We've CVC Capital are buying into Six Nations rugby. Yep. Um, when yep. the original idea for the FIFA Club World Cup was floated, there was a talk about a Saudi investment fund buying into the competition. So, you know, the other problem with this European Super League was it raised questions about the historic way that the international match calendar works where yeah. there are places for national team matches, there are places for European continent club competition matches and there are places for national team competition, you know. Yeah. And personally, I think that system works very, very well because fans get the best of three different worlds. They get the best of the national team competition, they get the best of the international club competitions and they get the best of the national team competitions. And this, and you again, you know, I think you can see, you can get a glimpse of the future. I would ask all your listeners
2: yeah.
1: To have a look at what's going on
0: in EuroLeague. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. Do you do you feel that um because obviously Jenny Fantino, um Seraphim from UEFA, they said that you know, if these players from these clubs compete in the ESL that they wouldn't compete on the international level, do you think that was well, I guess it's speculation, but do you think that was actually a legit um could that be legitimising in terms of how it happened? Because obviously you mentioned about there could be a clash with the international calendar from the ASL perspective and their clubs. Um, On the other side of the fence, would they even be allowed to, depending on what, you know, those regulations?
1: I mean, it's a nuclear option, isn't it? That they say that if your club's leaving, your players can't compete in competitions we run I mean, it's a logical thing to say. Yeah. I mean, if you have people leaving your competition to set up a rival competition... Yeah. Why then then would you facilitate people from those involved in those rival competitions, even if they're players who are innocent bystanders and the whole thing? Yeah. Why why would why would you allow it? Because it would be effectively allowing them to have their cake and eat it. Yeah. But there's there's I mean, I've been listening to a lot of legal opinion during the week. Some people say that it was unenforceable, the sanction. I mean, I'm not I'm not a lawyer, I'm not in a position to say. But what I can say is that you know, it would certainly complicate things for national team competitions. Yeah, for sure. I, I would, I would refer you back to the Euroleague situation. the yeah. I mean, The Euroleague breakaway, as it's currently has it, as it is currently evolved. I mean, ironically, the the national leagues were involved in the original Euroleague, and now the clubs control it. Yeah. But if you look at the way Euroleague operates, it's been it's been good for the big clubs in the Euroleague to some extent, but it's been very bad for the national leagues. And it's been very, very bad for national team competition.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I I suspect that that you know that is one road that that you could have seen going going, uh, you you could see ASL
0: going down. Yeah.
1: yeah, And just on that point, I mean, you know, one of my many, many, many reservations of the ASL business is that when you start totting up the 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 sort of the ledger on the pluses and the minuses, yeah, really. The only people who are going to benefit from it are the owners of the of the of the fifteen clubs. Yeah. Potentially some of their players, although there will be stricter salary controls. And
0: there's really nothing in it for anybody else. Mm. Yeah, and I and I mean, I, yeah, I guess on that point as well. Um, I think another key thing to maybe highlight is. Yeah, just the potential that the clubs saw in terms of broadcasting rights. I think this was another issue in terms of Project Big Picture. Um, collective bargaining rights, as we've discussed, is good for the overall um, league structure. But I think these clubs, these big clubs, are seeing uh, their international fans, how much they can tap into it. And doing, for example, like a Netflix for Liverpool FC, my United FC, if you've got like 150 million fans globally, and they pay £1 for that. They're seeing all of that side of things in terms of the how they can grow and further increase their revenues.
1: Yeah, but they can do that. They can do that under the current... I mean, that you could have done that under the current system as yeah. well.
0: Yeah, agreed. The,
1: the other thing about this is that the clubs, the main clubs, are English, Spanish, and Italian, right? Yeah. Now, you know, at some point, there's going to be, you know you Know okay, let's keep it in Europe for a minute, but mm-hmm. Turkey, right? I think it's number seven in revenue, certainly. Yeah. A broad I mean, they have three super clubs Besiktas, Galatasi, Fenabace. Okay, yep. Are their fans going to start, suddenly start following Liverpool? I don't <laughs> think so. No, I mean, you know, they may they may they may um pay one euro to watch the odd game or whatever, you know. Yeah, I think the thing is that that. This this is this was basically setting up to be a
0: global league Yep,
1: in three countries in Western Europe. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: come on, yeah.
1: No, I mean, right. And you know, the, the thing about this is, it's quite difficult to internationalize clubs. I mean, the NFL has been talking about having a franchise, or people have been talking about not the, the, of having an NFL franchise in London for how long?
2: Yeah.
1: Um you know, it hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened because it's really difficult. I mean, let's not forget the NFL had NFL Europe. It was a failure. They closed it. Yeah. So, you know, I think this idea that you're going to have all the football fans in Europe watching a 15-team league, which where all the teams are based in three countries in Europe. No, you're right. You know, I mean, if you're going to have a global league, have a team in, 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 in Lagos, have a team in... Yeah. Shanghai have a team in Istanbul. I mean, you know that's the way to do it. Make it representative, no, for sure. Um, yeah, sorry, go on. I mean, one of the, just just as I said, one yeah. you know Joseph Blatter, right, is a disgraced figure, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the things that he did was he internationalized football. Yeah. One of his arguments was that it had to go outside of Europe and Latin America. Yeah. He took the World Cup to South Africa. He took the World Cup to Seoul, uh, to, to Korea, and Japan. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, I think he was right about this. He said you have to internationalize it. You yep. have to go to those places. Yep. I mean, this is like a throwback. Yeah. To, I mean, I don't want to be use language which is too sort of emotive for anything, but, I mean, I mean, there's more to the world than Western Europe.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Right. Yes, you are. (laughs) You are right. You are. Um, And I I guess where does this, what's the, because look, things are definitely going to change after this. This is, you know, a pivotal moment in terms of football globally. Um, Where or how does football change after this? How would be the dynamics between competitions? Would it change vastly? I mean, it's gone under radar what's happened, but this new Champions League format. I mean, if you compare the ESL proposals to the new Champions League format, I don't really see that much of a difference in terms of the amount of games, um, even in terms of the payments as well, how it's been structured. But how do how does football how would football change um, coming out of this? Well,
1: the irony of the new structure is that the new structure was dropped. It was. Driven in part by the demands of the clubs that later wanted
0: to break away. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: I mean, you know that—that's you know, I mean, it's the UEFA Champions League is a compromise. It, it's an attempt to satisfy the demands yeah. of the big clubs for more big game, for more games and more games with bigger teams, which they have from yeah. this. We, yeah, while at the same time giving game opportunity to the middle ranking. Yeah. Teams as well. I mean, I personally, um, you know, I have a, I'm. A, I mean, we all have our ideal model about what it would look like. I mean, what I would say about you know, and this is not my ideal model, you know. Yeah. But what I would say about it is that under this new system, this proposed, um, there'll be more teams from the smaller countries able to play because there'll be 36 slots opposed to 32. Yeah. I think the Conference League is a very good idea. I mean, everybody knocked the Europa League when it was first set up. It, it, it replaced the old uh, UEFA, UEFA cup, cup and the Cup on Cup, but it actually generates nearly seven times more revenue than the UEFA Cup did through central, through, through central selling, and, yeah. and, 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 and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think there's an appetite for for European competition for middle-ranking clubs. So, you know, I think that... Um, I think that they probably UEFA probably did the best they could mm-hmm. to try to balance the interests of the got. But one thing I'm going to say now, which maybe will be you know people will like it, is that you know one of the problems with the, with the fact one of the reasons why UEFA comp- teams competing in UEFA competitions de- destabilize national team competitions is because the UEFA competitions are successful, they're well organized, they generate a lot of revenue. A lot of national team competitions are badly organised. I mean, Syria, right, myself and some colleagues in 2010 published an article about how did Syria go from the top league in Europe in the early 90s yeah. to where it was then. So decrepit stadiums, half-empty stadiums, no international TV broadcasting rights, systemic match-fixing scandal, which actually Juventus yeah. was in the middle of Yeah. It's not late. And nothing much much has changed in the in the in the following ten years, so you know one of the things that was driving Juventus to move into the Super League was that Syria A was just falling so far behind the Premier League in terms of revenue. Yeah. The, the Premier League, by contrast, was really well run and is really, really well run. And so I think that one of the things that does need to happen is that rather than everybody just focusing on the the, the European the, the Champions League, or they should look look at the. Look at the national leagues, and they need to get their act together. I yeah, mean, yeah. there's progress that's been made with Spain under Javier Tevez. I think he's yeah. on the job there. Yeah. They've got the collective selling arrangements now. You know, um, they've got some strong clubs like Seville, uh, Bilbao. So I think that has to be dealt with. I personally am a big, big fan of regional leagues. Mm-hmm. I think that the reason why the big five leagues are the big five is because they're the five biggest broadcasting markets in Europe.
2: Yeah. But if you
1: combine Belgium and Holland and Luxembourg, you would have a a sixth
0: big TV broadcasting market. Which is what's what's happening now, right? The new. Well, that's a proposal. It's a proposal. Yeah. And, you know, these regional leagues
1: are always opposed by national associations because they were afraid that if you had a cross border league, there would end up being demands for a cross border national team. So, for example, Scotland, England, and Wales. Yeah, Team GB, whatnot. Yeah, which is what, you know. So, which is why the Scots the Welsh and Welsh Canaries didn't participate in the Olympic team in, in, in 2012. Yeah. So, personally, I think that you can. There's, there's two things have to happen here. I mean, I think that, um, maybe, you know, the, the competitive there is a competitive balance challenge in the Champions League at the moment, and that had to be addressed in some way. You know, yeah. whether this is what's proposed is the best way to do it remains to be seen. But, mm-hmm. but something did have to be done about it. No, for sure. but the competitive balance would be less profound if the national leagues like Syria in particular evolved proper sustainable business models. And I think if we moved to a system of regional leagues around Europe which had bigger broadcasting markets, yeah. And I think all the innovation that the ASL were talking about about selling games and for one pound in, in China can still be done under the current system.
2: Yeah.
1: Because I mean the, the real the real objective of the ACL in my view was to take the value that was being created under the UEFA umbrella and transfer it to the ACL so that the rewards would be concentrated in a narrow group of hands. Mm. It's a straightforward power play. Yeah. It's it's just straight out of the sort of hedge fund investment fund playbook, asset strip playbook.
0: Yeah. 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 Do you reckon... um even in terms of changes in terms of governance right because i know here in england there is an ongoing um the government does some ongoing they're looking into how things can be changed in terms of um football but do you think there will now be some governance changes in terms of you know what was the, the fit and proper fit and proper test for incumbent and incoming owners Maybe some independent um, regulators to assess and see things through on, in football. Where just what, what do you think, in terms of that sense, in terms of, in terms of governance, how things can possibly change?
1: I mean, I mean, one of the few advantages of being an older geezer like myself, right, is that, you know, you see these things come around. Yeah. New Labour had the football task force in the late 90s. This was all discussed, went nowhere. Yeah. Um, you know, the various other times just come around. I mean, I gave evidence myself to the 2011 Culture and Media Sport Committee, uh, you know, arguing for a higher standard of club licensing, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether you need an independent regulator. I just think that what you need is, I mean, at the end of the day, the the Premier League is a private business. Yeah. And they, you know, they're entitled to run it any way they want. You know, I mean, that's what the law says.
2: Yeah.
1: And, you know, so for example, I mean, I, as you know, I'm a huge supporter of the fan ownership model. Yep. Um, but you know, one of the problems with some of the proposals at the moment to say that, like, clubs will have to have supported directors is that, basically, a supported director would be like a stakeholder director. Yeah. And I can't see this government. I mean, it came up on the New Labour as well. I just think the wider corporate sector will not accept it. Yeah. I think that there does need to be an improvement in the standard of governance. I mean. One of the things that's happened in the UK was it, it back in the day when the Premier League was first set up, it was the FA Premier League. The Premier League was very much well, it was under the auspices of the FA, but now basically it's yeah. an autonomous organization. And the FA doesn't have a really a much of a role in governing in its governance. Um, so really what you what what you've got to hope is that, that the, the Premier League will improve its own governance. I mean, one of the one of the proposals which went below the radar for um, Project Big Picture was that the big clubs wanted to veto new owners. Yeah. Now, I can see why they would want to do that. I mean, the reason that you have an a, a, a owners and directors test is that there have been problems in the past of owners taking control of clubs and they didn't actually have the money.
2: Yeah.
1: And they have the problem with, say, the Portsmouth example, which was the only club to go bankrupt while it's in the Premier League, which went bankrupt. They had four owners in one season and... Right. You know, nearly, nearly went, nearly went out of business and wasn't able to play, to complete his fixtures. Yeah. So, so, the fundamental reason why a league needs a fit and proper person test is it needs a, clubs which have which are which are financially sustainable and can complete their, their fixtures. Mm. And you know, and you know, they also need to protect about people coming in to use clubs as money wandering, yeah,
2: yeah, and
1: all the rest of it. So, I, I certainly think that the 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 um. There needs to be stronger owners and directors tests, absolutely for sure. Yeah, yeah. And um, there may well be a case for treating football as a sort of a major cultural institution and having wider government controls. Mm-hmm. But I think when you get down to the nitty gritty, I would be surprised if that happens. Yeah. You know, I I, I think that I, I think that they. You know, if you look at the football league, a lot of the problems in the football league are, are, are basically caused by the football league clubs. Yep. In two thousand and fifteen, there was a proposal which I thought was very sensible. That was called the the global the, the what's it the, the whole game solution, and it basically it got, there was a it basically they were going to remove the three twenty four team leagues and go to four twenty team leagues and bring teams up from the national league. Yeah. Uh, there was a whole battle then about whether you would have Premier League reserve teams playing in the league, et cetera, et cetera, and an argument about the um, the calendar. Yeah, but I think I thought that that particular element had a lot of merit, because you know why are teams playing? Why are the twenty four teams in the championship? Yeah, because you know by the end of the season there are eight teams in the middle of the the championship. We've got nothing to play for. Yeah. The reason is because the club owners want them want the games to get the money, and they're not thinking about a bigger picture. About if they had twenty teams, they, they would be better balanced. They may be able to generate more money. I mean, I think there has been a chronic lack of strategic, high quality strategic thinking about how the football league should be organised. Yeah, and I think that before you you, you know I, I think government had all, government always has a role. It's entirely legitimate for, I mean, I think the Culture and Media Sport Committee, Damien Collins, MP in particular, yep. have done a first-class job in keeping the focus on the problems of governance in the football industry, and I total respect to them for that, and, I, and they continue to do it, and they continue to drive it. So these people that say that politicians shouldn't get involved, I completely disagree with that.
2: Yeah,
1: But, you know, at the end of the day, these these sports organizations are self-governing bodies and you know there is a parallel in the olympic sports where if you want to get money from uk sport you know to develop your sport then you have to meet certain governance structures you know the uk Sport governance code so maybe maybe there's an argument for having a sports act yeah and, and saying that in professional sports that they also have to meet the requirements I mean, for example, the the, the, the FA in order to continue to get public money for football development had to increase the number of women, for example, on its yeah. own board, which I think was the right thing. There's, there's a whole issue around promoting wider diversity, um, which is absolutely necessary, um, which has been pushed by government. Um, the, the question is, should that be extended into the sort of professional sports? And that, I mean, I think that's something that should be debated.
2: Yeah,
1: But I think... More importantly at the moment the, the football League in particular needs needs to it needs to resolve the, the, there are things that it can do yep no fair right. they, they tried to introduce a salary cap, right in, in leagues one and two in principle it was a good idea but they had an agreement with the PFA about you know they were they were compelled to, to consult with them they went ahead and introduced it without, without consulting with the PFA and when it went to arbitration they had to abandon it. I mean, you know, that, that, why do you do that? I mean, it's, it's just, it's not sound management. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's an absolute case in the football league to have some kind of financial, aggressive financial fair play system whereby rather than having a hard salary cap, you basically, you know, you do like in the UEFA system where you can only, you can spend a percentage, you, you, you can spend as much on labor without going into loss making overall. Yeah. I, mean, I think, I think Gabriel, this, is what, this is what I would say, Gabriel, and you probably expect me to say this. <laughs> I think that there's, you know, I think there's still, a, there, there's still not enough people who have really taken the time to understand the complexity yeah. of a professional sports league pyramid yep. as an economic proposition. All, you know, it's a very, very, there's a lot of different moving parts here. Yeah, and I think we need to move beyond knee-jerk reactions. Yes, and really, really look at it in the detail. And rather than just going for the knee-jerk, government must intervene. Yeah, the Premier League is a quite a well-organized competition. If the if the if the if the, if the, if the AFL was organized at that level, yeah, would you would you be looking for government intervention?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a fair point. Fair question. Very fair. Um, but no, Sean, thank you. Thank you so much. We could talk about this for, for a very long time, but no, it's great. Really good um, analysis, even mentioning things that I haven't even thought about as well. And I guess we'll see how how things play out, how football evolves coming out of this whole um, ASL saga. And uh, yeah, and the wide implications of it as well. But
1: no, it's thank very, you. It's a, it's a very, very, very complex market. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I think that, I mean, I think the SL thing is going to come back. Yep. It's very, very to come back. Yeah. I don't particularly welcome it, but all I would say to everybody listening to this, take a step back, you know, educate yourselves about, you know, what is UEFA? UEFA is, 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 is a, an association of associations. Yep. Which has a bilateral stakeholder engagement uh, situation uh, mechanism which which has the, the European Clubs Association and the European Leagues on its executive committee. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not some kind of monolithic um corporation. You know it, it's and, and and also the same thing in English football. I mean, you know, English football is not the t- the top six teams. You know it's it's not even the 20 teams in the Premier League. Yeah. There's 72 more teams in the EFL and then you go down to the National Association, and then you've got, then you the so-called European model of sport, where it you know where you have all these inter- these different parts, it's much more complex yeah. than the North American entertainment model.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: despite all its faults, it delivers a lot of value. Yeah. And my, my, my closing point would be: if we're going to allow this system to basically be decapitated, if you like, with all the negative consequences that that's going to have. For all the other stakeholders, except the people who own the top 20 clubs, we've got to have some very, very, very good reasons. Yeah. And at the moment, I
0: don't see any. Bro, Sean, thank you so much. Yeah, I love it. Oh, I it. It's
1: always a pleasure. You're, you always make me think.
0: And nah. I'm sorry,
1: I'm sorry if I have talked too much, but you know. No, it's great.
0: it's great we love it thank you so much again all All Um, the best and to everyone listening for the first time or if not we hope you enjoyed it um continue to to follow us and yeah we look forward to um seeing you virtually again so thanks and take care